Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. I am naturally indebted to and the Oscar goes to Hello and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy. The valley is alive with the sound of music. (laughs) (laughs) Coming to you from the valley, it's us. Yeah, definitely not half as pretty of as the hills of Austria, but... Uh, that is definitely true. <laughs> but this is the 38th Academy Awards and the 38th Best Picture winner, The Sound of Music! Hooray! We have made it to this film. Yeah, I can't believe we're here. I know, a tried and true classic. Yeah, I w- as I was watching it and I was like being giddy, like... With glee, you know, enjoying myself watching it. (laughs) I was like, you have to have a really dark soul to not like this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Like, no one actually doesn't like the sound of music. Yeah, I don't know anyone who doesn't. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely people who don't love it or it's not their favorite movie. And those people, I would say, I would wager to bet that they don't like it because they are not into musicals. Sure. Or they haven't seen it since they were a kid, which was me as I was watching it. Because I didn't like this movie as a kid Mm because I thought it was really boring, especially the nun stuff. I liked all the stuff with the kids when they're singing Do Re Mi. But other than that, I didn't really like it as a kid. Well, it could definitely go over a kid's head, too. It did. I didn't understand it. But, Mm -hmm. I, you know, I love the musical. I've seen the musical. I've worked on the musical multiple times. Like, Mm -hmm. I, I love it. I love it. And so watching the movie again was just so much joy and... It's got something for everybody. Yeah. But before we get too deep into it, we would like to bring you the Penny News. The news about Penny. Update. Uh, So Penny recently has been going on more walks. She is not a pup that goes on walks. She likes to go out very quick and do her business and come back inside. But we've had to be walking more. We're working on our mental health and we're doing things outside and blah, 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 which means Penny's forced into it too. Ah, Probably helps Penny a little bit, too, because then she works out some energy. She's not being just a lazy bones like she normally does. <laughs> She's earned her, uh, you her know, 20 her... hours of sleep a day. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Penny, because of this, is Ugh. a grandma walker. She's the worst. I can't understand it. It's like she wants to punish you for taking her out (laughs) so she walks as slowly as she can she's almost four and she's just doesn't really go on walks and so like it's not that she won't walk and she's been on lots of hikes yeah she'll hike but it's it's the fact that she's in our neighborhood where Mm -hmm. she's already familiar there's nothing new or interesting to her she knows where she can go back inside right away yeah and so as we're walking, she's sniffing as she goes, but she's just like sauntering along with her tail low wagging as she's going. And she just keeps looking up at you with these big droopy eyes. Like Sometimes she'll just like stick her paws in the ground and just be like, nope, no further. It's what the vet calls putting on the brakes. Like sometimes <laughs> she puts her brakes on. Yeah. <laughs> and then she's had enough. Yeah. And she, you can't make her do anything. It's so ridiculous. Although I was telling I was telling you recently I saw another dog 
on a walk that mm-hmm. is a cavalier when I was driving around a different neighborhood. And I saw that dog do the exact same thing, put on the brakes and like refuse to just like carry on. And it looked exactly like Penny. I was like, maybe cavaliers are known anti-walkers. <laughs> I mean, they were bred to sit on the king's lap. <laughs> They're meant to be snuggle dogs that keep you warm. There is a little cavalier that is on our street also. And it sits in one of the <laughs> like screen doors of one of the apartments nearby. And every now and then it will just give like one big howl at Penny. It's very cute. It's very cute. It's funny to see them look at each other. It's like a mirror. Anyways. We're working on it. (laughs) That's the news about Penny, the slow grandma walker. But she is getting her steps in. Ah, good job, Penny. Well, shall we get into this episode? Yeah, let's talk about uh, the... 38th Academy Award. Yeah. I'm uh, excited to talk about this. Honestly, I'm more excited about your section than mine because, you know, mine's kind of just about the ceremony and I want to hear about the movie. But let's do this too because it is important. So this ceremony was held on April 19th, 1966 at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. Uh, They've been there for the last several years. Tried and true. Yep. Once you find something that works. Uh, Hosted by Bob Hope again. Once you find something that works. (laughs) Produced by, again, Joe Pasternak and directed by Richard Dunlap. So they're kind of our go-to for the last couple of years as well. Mm -hmm. This is the very first broadcast in color. Whoa. That's exciting. The age of television has dawned in color. Wow. It's crazy. Live color television. Yeah. They've been a part of ABC for the last several years. Mm -hmm. um, And so this is the first year that they do live television in color via ABC on their color networks. It was a very big deal. And because it was such a big deal, they hired art directors Alexander Goldson and William Morris to design an unusually spectacular set. Oh, interesting. It included 42 fountain spraying water. Oh, my. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't necessarily need to be in color, though. It does, though. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, I'm thinking like, oh, there are going to be banners and ribbons and like bright roses everywhere. And nope, just water. I mean, it's still very glamorous. They have a lot of like color going on. And I I don't know if they always wear a lot of color outfits because it's hard to tell with black and white photos and black and white video that Mm -hmm. I've been watching and looking through. But to me, it seems like people wore a lot of color too. Mm. Like lots of purple dresses and green dresses and Mm. yellow dresses. More rich colors. Yeah, yeah. Like popping colors. And like, honestly, the kind of colors you think of when you think of the 60s, the like Mm. mint green and the like golden yellow. Well, and when you think of the 60s fashion, you're really thinking of post-1965. Yeah. Like this time right. now that we're getting into. So that makes sense too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So very glamorous, very fun though, which I thought was really nice. Like it's a very brightly colored celebratory year. Mm, fun. Yeah. The evening opened with a song that was a look back through the winners titled The Academy Awards Song or Mr. Oscar. And it was sung by the Academy Awards Choir. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> which I didn't know there was a choir. <laughs> But apparently this In- choir invented was invented for this occasion. <laughs> yeah. And it was a pre-recorded video that was like it was basically a slideshow, but it opens of all the winners. Yeah, past winners. But it opens on like the you know how Disney movies open with like the fairy tale book and they op- turn the yeah. first page. It had that opening oh. and it turns to the first page of Walt Disney and Shirley Temple with his seven dwarves oh, statuette. And then it goes into a bunch of different people who have won and showing their pictures and but it's like 
It's like three minutes long. So wow. <laughs> they like really went for it. Yeah. Also, that's weird to do it at the 38th and not some yeah. like big, like the 40th or something. Yep. Don't know why they picked it, but they did. maybe it's because it was in color and they were like, we're just going to go all out. I don't know. But all the films that they're showing, <laughs> few the- of them are not in color. Like- all the pictures are in black and white. Yes. Oh, I'm saying all of this because I just, I figure it's worth sharing more about some of the bits that are done during the ceremonies. I haven't really been doing that because I like to talk about the politics and what goes into the awards, but I wanted to kind of share where some of the traditions that we see today have come from. Previous to these ceremonies, a lot of that is not even recorded still. It's true. Yeah. And so the best references I can usually get is like, so-and-so did a song for this reason. Mm -hmm. But um, I have some more, like I was able to watch these videos and like kind of see it for myself, which was really fun so the other bit that they did this year um that bob hope did was seven minutes long i did watch it all okay but it's it's really cute it was a seven minute bit that opens with bob hope saying quote this year i wondered again what i've been doing wrong so i asked some former winners for a few tips so then in a like pre-recorded video of these actors they went through sharing some of their tips that were quote the main factor in an award-winning performance. Uh-oh. So the people that were interviewed were Ingrid Bergman, Simone Signoret, Sophia Loren, Burt Lancaster, Patricia Neal, Jack Lemmon, David Nivens and Olivia de Havilland. Oh, okay. Cool. So it's like an interesting group of people from different, you know, eras whatever. Mm-hmm. Um they pretty much all said that it's about having a good role, like a good meaty role that's, you know, prominent. Yeah, right. And then picking a movie that is very popular or good quality in order to win. Mm-hmm. Um, and then next steps are having a good director and then after that having filmmakers that make them look good. So it's mm. very generic. Um, Sophia Loren mentioned how when she won her Oscar, it was very fulfilling and it encouraged her to seek out roles that didn't rely on her exterior, which got a oh. laugh from the audience and was very sweet, you know, that she was like, mm-hmm. oh, I can do these like heartier roles, whatever. Um, <laughs> Burt Lancaster, of course, bemoans that actors who do great jobs in films that go unnoticed don't get nominated. <laughs> <laughs> so he emphasized the importance of picking good pictures that were backed by big studios or whatever. And I was like, well, how do you do that? <laughs> you know, yeah. how does like the every man actor, you know, be like, oh, okay, great. I got to get that Warner Brothers picture that is going to be the big hit this year. Like you can't do that. Yeah, in a sense. I mean, I, I feel like he is an interesting case because he is an independent filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And so he's basically saying not to do what he does. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's funny. I don't know. And he's so funny. Like he, his interview is so like, uh, um, all right. Like that, it's very put together, <laughs> but you can tell that behind the scenes, he was like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying as hard as the next guy. <laughs> um, he, Bob Hope also asked Jack Lemon to describe winning. And he said that he was absolutely elated because it was the highest accolade that he could ever receive because being honored by your peers means more than anything else does. And he talked about how if you're a bricklayer and someone walks by a house and says, wow, you did a beautiful job. That's a beautiful house. Who cares? But if another bricklayer walks by and says, wow, you're a great bricklayer. Good job on this house. It means so much to you. And how that's how he felt being honored by the Academy, which was cute. And especially as like a comedic actor. Yes. Which mm-hmm. does not happen very often. Yes. Also, David Nivens uh, talked about how he was so excited to receive his award that he fell on the stairs. <laughs> he was like, ah. <laughs> Many others have done the same thing. 
Uh, He's not alone in that. I also thought this was funny. Bob Hope asked Olivia de Havilland if she had any advice for this year's nominees, to which she replied, oh, I have advice for this year's nominees. (laughs) (laughs) Of course she does. And she proceeded to say this, and it went in a direction that I wasn't expecting, so just, like, be prepared. It's not what you think it's going to be. She says, quote, I recommend a dishonest method that has been employed by my sister with unfailing success. <laughs> I mean, okay, I should have jumped in and said what I thought she was going to say. And it literally was about her sister and how you should have a sister to compete with. And like, okay, but just so you know, it is going to become a joke. So she says, um, uh, uh, it's not already a joke. <laughs> okay. That's been employed by my sister with unfailing success since she was nine years old and I was 10 years old and we used to play cards in the summer. She won every single round and I discover what her secret weapon was. It was infallible. And then she took like a pause and like did a little look at the camera and said, she prayed. Use that system. Oh, interesting. <laughs> to which immediately after that, they cut to Burt Lancaster giving advice. He says, just pray. jack lemon's advice was stuff the ballot box and david niven's advice was don't spend any time making up acceptance speeches or get carried away by anyone's reactions the night before and then he talks about how previous to when he won Mm -hmm. he went to a party the night before that was like 300 people and people kept signaling to him like across the room like i voted for you like doing little hand signals and being like great job i voted for you you're gonna win and he was like oh wow i guess i'm gonna win and then a a girl came up to him that was in the like actresses categories and he did not vote for her and he said great job i voted for you and then he's like "Mm." so (laughs) i bet none of these people voted for me (laughs) bummer Anyways, that was the segment. It was very cute, very fun, a little lengthy in my opinion, but uh, yeah, you know, just kind of a fun little thing. So this year, The Sound of Music and Dr. Zhivago were the most nominated films. They both had 10 nominations and five wins, and they're two of the like most commercially successful films. Um, they both have lasted, stood the test of time. They're both on AFI's Greatest American Films list. Um, of course, both great films. Robert Weiss did not have to share his award this time when he won Best Picture, hey, hey. as he did when he won for West Side Story. He was the sole producer, and so he got to take the Oscar. Weirdly enough, neither of these two major films, The Sound of Music or Dr. Zhivago, received any Best Actor nominations, which seems strange considering that Christopher Plummer and Rod Steiger were not nominated mm-hmm. as the leads in both of those big films. Um, The thing that was even crazier was that there were other, you know, prominent nominees in the category Best Actor who were defeated by winner Lee Marvin. And this is his sole career nomination. And he won for playing two roles in the same film, Cat Bayou, which was a very small comedy. It was kind of a sleeper film. Um, And it's like one of the very few times in Academy history that they recognize a comedic performance uh, as Best Actor. And as I was like looking through stuff, the other comedic performances that are considered for this, at least up to this point, um, and honestly for most of the like time afterwards, were Clark Gable in It Happened One Night mm. and James Jimmy Stewart in The Philadelphia Story. And, of course, Jack Lemmon in The Apartment. Um, the Best Actress category was also a little strange, um, considering that Julie Andrews did not win for The Sound of Music. I was like looking into this about why this may have happened. Julie Christie ended up winning Best Actress for Darling, which was kind of a sleazy film about uh, mm. swinging London and um, she like wore a miniskirt, that kind of thing. She also is the first Oscar winner to win for a performance that featured a nude scene. Oh, yeah. Wow. 
So it was like just a very like boundary pushing film and Mm -hmm. her role was boundary pushing. It's also on the more comedic side, Mm -hmm. but you know, we've talked about how, you know, with some of the more recent films that have come out, it seems like that is the direction people are going. And so who knows? That was what was awarded over, you know, someone like Julie Andrews that year. Mm -hmm. And one other weird thing about Lee Marvin too, is this is one of the only like best actor wins for um, a role that was not in a nominated best picture film. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's a very rare thing. Mm -hmm. It happens a lot with uh, best actress performances, but it's very strange when it happens for best actor. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked about that, how the ties between best actress and best picture are like non-existent Mm -hmm. almost, but with best actor, yeah, it usually goes hand in hand. So yeah, that is true. The other thing about the Best Actress category is that only one of the nominees was American, Elizabeth Hartman. The other three were uh, British, Julie Christie, Julie Andrews, and Samantha Egger. And then one was French, Simone Signorette. Hmm. Wow. Uh, Speaking of weird nomination things, um, for the Best Supporting nominees, three were from the film Othello, Mm -hmm. uh, the Laurence Olivier Othello. Uh, (laughs) um, And this was the third film in Academy history to receive four acting nominations without a Best Picture nomination. Um, So this also happens at the ninth for My Man Godfrey, the 21st for I Remember Mama, this film. And then it doesn't happen again until the 81st Academy Awards with Doubt, which I continually mention because it's just boggling. Yeah, so strange. Um, Also, speaking of supporting actors in the supporting actress category, Shelley Winters becomes the first actress to win two Best Supporting Actress awards. Yeah, that is also really interesting. I mean, the category hasn't been around that long yet. But also, like, I don't know. I feel like there are a lot of people who play more supporting roles frequently Uh or like... It's just strange because I saw that this doesn't happen again until like much, much later. Mm -hmm. It's only happened twice ever. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's just kind of a weird thing to think about that like, I don't know, it doesn't happen more often. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. She won for The Diary of Anne Frank and then this year she wins for A Patch of Blue, which is the Sydney Poitier film. Mm Mm-hmm. The other thing that was kind of weird this year is that The Sound of Music wins Best Picture, of course, but they don't get a screenwriting nomination, which hadn't happened since Hamlet, where something won Best Picture without a screenwriting nomination, and it's not going to happen again until Titanic at the 70th Academy Awards. Yeah, which is also strange because I feel like the script is pretty good for The Sound of Music. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I mean... It could be adapted. Like, I was thinking to myself, oh, it's because it was something else already. But that's what adapted is for. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there wasn't a whole lot of changes made, for better or worse, you know? Like... I mean, there kind of was. I'll get into some of that, too. But... I don't know. Just speculation. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Finally, uh, this year, William Wyler receives his very last directing nomination. But he also receives the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award. Um, and his speech was so sweet. It like brought tears to my eyes. He, um, in his acceptance speech, it's all about Irving G. Thalberg. Mm-hmm. And so he recalls when they were young boys working together. And of course, Irving yeah, because they were great friends. Yeah. Of course, Irving G. Thalberg was way farther ahead than he was. <laughs> farther ahead than everyone. <laughs> yeah. And everyone would ever be. <laughs> and he just talks about how his vision was to make such good quality film, how he had the eye 
for finding the right things that interested him, but also making them into really, really high quality productions. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he just was really honored by that. And he ended his speech by saying, quote, I'm doubly proud and pleased to receive this award bearing both his name and mine. Nice. Yeah. So that was really sweet. So that's what I have to share about this particular ceremony. You know, lots of fun from the videos I've watched. It seems like a very easy night. And a lot of the films that were nominated were on the lighter side Mm -hmm. um, or just like more interesting, not as heavy dark drama this year. Mm -hmm. So I'll go through some of our winners for this year. Of course, Best Picture goes to The Sound of Music. Best Director goes to Robert Weiss for The Sound of Music. Best Actor goes to Lee Marvin for Cat Bayou. Best Actress goes to Julie Christie in Darling. Best Supporting Actor goes to Martin Balsam in A Thousand Clowns. Best Supporting Actress goes to Shelley Winters in A Patch of Blue. Best Story and Screenplay written directly for the screen or original screenplay goes to Darling. Best Screenplay based on material from another medium goes to Dr. Zhivago. Best Foreign Language Film goes to The Shop on Main Street. Best Documentary Feature goes to The Eleanor Roosevelt Story. Best Documentary Short goes to To Be Alive. Um, Best Short Subject Live Action goes to The Chicken. Best Short Subject Cartoon or Animated goes to The Dot and the Line. Best Music Score Substantially Original goes to Dr. Zhivago. Best Music Score Adaption or Treatment goes to The Sound of Music. Best Song goes to The Shadow of Your Smile from The Sandpiper. Best Sound Effects goes to The Great Race. Best Sound goes to The Sound of Music. Best Art Direction in Black and White goes to Ship of Fools. Best Art Direction in Color goes to Dr. Zhivago. Best Cinematography in Black and White goes to Ship of Fools. Best Cinematography in Color goes to Dr. Zhivago. Best Costume Design in Black and White goes to Darling. Best Costume Design in Color goes to Dr. Zhivago. Best Film Editing goes to The Sound of Music. And Best Visual Effects goes to Thunderball. Of course, we would be remiss to have an Academy Awards without an honorary award given to the one, the only, Bob Hope. (laughs) For what do you think? I don't know, some uh, distinguished (laughs) contributions to the Academy. Unique and distinguished service to our industry and the Academy. (laughs) I think he gets it. Like, he knows that he's beloved. Well, and like, it's funny because in his bit, he was like, I don't know how to get an award, so give me some tips. Like, that was what it was about. Because he hasn't won anything for acting or producing or Mm -hmm. directing or anything like that. I think they're just like, we just got to give this guy stuff. And, of course, as I mentioned, there's an Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award given to William Wyler. And this year, there is a Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award given to Edmund L. DePate. Um, He was a vice president and general manager of Warner Brothers. Um, He also was an industry executive, worked a lot in the film industry, etc. And he was honored just a couple months before he died. So, yeah, that is uh, what I have to say about the academy awards this year um so why don't we take a little break here and when we come back you can tell us about the sound of music yay and we're back time for the year 1965 starting with some famous births of course ah yes alan cumming brandon lee Chris Rock, Michael Bay, Noah Emmerich, Sarah Jessica Parker, Robert Downey Jr., Martin Lawrence, John Henson, 
Kevin James, John C. Riley, Brooke Shields, Sam Mendez, Viola Davis, Kira Sedgwick, Marley Matlin, Charlie Sheen, Brian Singer, David Wenham, Steve Coogan, Mads Mickelson, Ben Stiller, Andrew Stanton, Jeffrey Wright, Ted Ramey, and J.B. Smoove. Wow. They're all people that I'm like, how could they possibly have been born this long ago? But whenever I see any of those people on the screen now, I'm like, oh my gosh, they look so old. Yeah. And they are. (laughs) They're getting up there. Also, I did not realize that Marley Matlin was as old as all of them. She seems way younger than some of them. Um, Some debuts in film this year. uh, Woody Allen, Ed Asner, Cher, Hmm. Robert De Niro, Michael Gambon, George Lucas, Alex Rocco, Catherine Ross, and Sam Waterston. Nice. Um, Some deaths this year. Nat King Cole. Oh. Pretty sad. That's sad. And he was only in his 40s, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Stan Laurel of Laurel and Hardy. Mm. Clemence Dane. Uh, She was a screenwriter, and she was one of the most popular and, like, most working female screenwriters from England. John Waters, uh, he was a director and a screenwriter. He was nominated twice as assistant director. You remember when that award existed, (laughs) and he won one. All right. He also wrote a handful of films for William Wyler. Okay, cool. Florence Ryerson was one of the most uh, working female screenwriters in America. Uh, She was also one of the screenwriters who contributed to The Wizard of Oz. Oh, cool. David O. Selznick. No, one of the greats. They're all coming down. Yeah. Oh, man. Of course, eight of his films were nominated for Best Picture. Two of them won. Um, So the films that he produced that were nominated for Best Picture were Viva Via, David Copperfield, Tale of Two Cities, the first version of A Star is Born, Mm -hmm. Gone with the Wind, of course, which won, and Rebecca, which won. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's been a while since he had a couple others nominated since you went away and spellbound um but spellbound came out in 1945 okay so it's been a while so it's been a while um he also won the irving g thalberg memorial award in 1939 Mm. when gone with the wind won right but he's still been a part of the machine um and this was kind of strange to me also he was only 63 when he died Oh, wow. So he was really young when so he, he started, So he was too. in his early 30s when he was, like, during the heyday of his career. Wow. Which I guess I just didn't realize at the time. Yeah. When we were going through it all. A titan of the industry. Yep. Dorothy Dandridge also <gasps> passed away. Really? Yes. Very, very young. So young. Are you serious? Um, Just want to mention a little bit about her death. Um, It, it was kind of a strange death. After her death, then... It, some information came out and she had talked to a friend of hers on the phone the okay. previous night to when she died. Um, and she was scheduled to fly to New York the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had a, like a tour set up like a nightclub tour. Mm. And she told her that this weird quote, basically right before she hung up, whatever happens, I know you will understand. What it was just a weird thing that she had said to her friend. Several hours later, she was found naked and unresponsive in her apartment by her manager. Mm. Um, And then they determined that the cause of her death was an accidental overdose of an antidepressant. But then they ended up saying that they thought that she died from an embolism 
that had come from a foot fracture that had happened a few days before, too. What? So it was very, very strange. Basically, like, people don't really know what happened to her or, like... That is too many weird things. Yeah, it was, like, inconclusive, basically, what actually killed her. Wow. And they don't think it was suicide? No, they never said it was suicide. Okay. They said it was it would have been an accidental overdose or, or it was this thing. other thing. Wow, that's weird. And I mean, it's so tragic that she passed so young. I mean, wow. She was only 42. Yeah. That's... And at the time, her like legacy was kind of lost. And it wasn't l- until later on that other black women started referencing her huh. that she sort of came back into the public eye as one of the other great like black actresses. Huh. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Particularly when Halle Berry played her. Ah, uh, yeah. So Wow. Well that's really sad. She was such a pioneer. Yeah. And she pushed through some major, major difficulties. Mm-hmm. Another great actress, Clara Bow. Oh, cute Clara. Yeah, she's been retired for quite a long time sure. at this point. Yeah. Um, but she, of course, was the first It Girl. Yeah. Uh, which the term was coined for her because of the movie It. <laughs> and, of course, she starred in the first Best Picture winning film, Wings. Yeah. Oh, she's so cute. Ugh. Henry Travers. Uh, actor of course he is most famous for his role in it's a wonderful life as clarence Mm. Um, he was also in the bells of saint mary's Mm -hmm. which we've talked about joseph breen died this Mm. year he's been retired from the production code for a handful of years at this point Um, but i thought that this was really interesting um after his death variety wrote a really big article about him okay and one of the things that they said was, quote, he was one of the most influential figures in American culture, and that more than any single individual, he shaped the moral stature of the American motion picture. Oh, my gosh. So, like, yeah, when you think about all of our conversations about the code and about how much the film industry shaped American culture during the time, I mean, like, that is all him. That's wild. It's so infuriating that one man can have that much power. And that you kind of don't even know. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. a lot of people have probably never heard his name before, don't know much about the code. No, yeah. And, like, it's just so interesting looking back and how much power he did have, like, behind the scenes. Well, and there are so many people today which is like my biggest pet peeve we're like oh things were so much better back then we didn't have all this sex and drugs and blah 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 and you know nothing bad happened and the 50s were perfect and whatever whatever (laughs) and it just makes me insane because i'm like you were shielded there was someone who was stopping all of that Mm -hmm. it was happening it was happening and i mean we know that now and like everybody kind of is aware but it's just a very strange social phenomenon that I'm just uh, it's so exhausting that it happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. It's over. Yes. It's all over. I wonder if anyone's made a dark drama about him. Oh, I don't know. That would be weird. I'm going to find out. I'll all report right. back. The last death I want to talk about is Frank Nugent. Um, he was a screenwriter. Uh, he was before he like joined the film industry like as a screenwriter or director. He was a reviewer for the New York Times. Um, He wrote over a thousand reviews for the New York Times and was pretty influential in like positive reviews for like early Hollywood days. Hmm. Of course, then he he was a screenwriter and he wrote 11 films for John Ford. 
Wow, impressive. Um, the one only one that he was nominated for was The Quiet Man, which is a good movie. Um, a couple of just interesting uh, newsworthy things of this year for the film industry. Um, the MGM Vault Fire happened. Uh oh. Um, on August tenth, nineteen sixty five, an electrical short in Vault Seven on Lot Three at MGM, which is now the Sony lot in Culver City caused the nitrate film to catch on fire, leading to the loss of the entire Vault 7 and many of the silent era MGM films that were in there. That's so tragic. Um, The most notable that were lost forever were Greta Garbo's The Divine Woman and the only known copy of Lon Chaney's London After Midnight, um, which still to this day is considered the most sought after lost film uh, in American history. Is there any way it is somewhere else or no? Uh, I mean, they if it is, they don't know about it. I mean, gotcha. people have been searching for it gotcha. in any place that they think they could find it. But The National Treasure 3. <laughs> <laughs> there was a National okay. Treasure 3. National Treasure 4. <laughs> and this even furthered more the idea. And it's strange because a lot of studios at this time would just destroy their old copies anyways to make room. Mm. But MGM was one of the few that had this huge archive Mm. and tried to keep a lot of stuff, which is why it seems like MGM was the most prolific studio because like the most MGM films have survived from that era. Gotcha. Yeah, right. Hmm. of course, they were also three separate studios, Metro, right. <laughs> Goldwyn, and Mayer, yeah. before they were MGM. So they have all of those, and you know. But after this, especially, then everybody started doing what they called the safety copies, uh. where they would make the copies of these early nitrate films on a new film that was not as flammable. That's a good idea. Because basically, if you were to like light these nitrate films on fire, they would like instantly combust, essentially. (laughs) They were so flammable. Yeah. And so the newer version of the film that was used didn't like catch on fire. It kind of just melted a little bit. So Uh it was easier to like... Put it out before everything was gone. Yeah. And it also like had to burn at a way higher temperature and like all this other stuff. (laughs) So anyways, that was that. Sandra D is the last major actress and star to have an exclusive contract with a studio, and that is with Universal. <laughs> so there's basically only one like major star left All right. that has an exclusive deal. It is the end of the studio model. Yeah. Um, this year we have the 18th Primetime Emmy Awards. Of course, they returned to their original format of giving out normal awards Great. rather than only six. Yeah, that was stupid. <laughs> they tried that for one year. And the Dick Van Dyke Show won four. Nice. Um, We also have the 20th Tony Awards. They have been around for 20 years now. Nice. Um, Marat Saad won Best Play, and Man of La Mancha won Best Musical. Oh, wow. Nice. Um, Sweet Charity got the most nominations with nine. Mm. Um, Of course, written by Neil Simon, choreographed by Bob Fosse. Bob Fosse's win was their only win. Oh, my gosh. Which is really strange. That's Um, crazy. It also starred his wife, Gwen Verdon. Right. Um, she and she was not even nominated. <gasps> Whoa. Weird. Yeah. Man of La Mancha had five wins. Mame, the musical version of Mame, the story, mm-hmm. uh, had three wins, including Best Actress in a Musical for Angela Lansbury <gasps> as Mame. We love Angela Lansbury. Yeah. Now on to the sound of music. So a little recap first, for those of you who don't know the plot. Maria doesn't fit in at the Abbey. She's... <laughs> 
<laughs> She's too restless there. True. <laughs> the sisters assign her to a family looking for a governess for seven children, and she is forced to accept, not sure what lies ahead. When she arrives, their father is a hardened military man, Captain Georg von Trapp, still suffering from the loss of his wife many years earlier, and the children have been trained to respond as little soldiers, no fun in their lives. Maria is the opposite of all of it, (laughs) constantly trying to have fun, singing all the time, making the children play clothes, and taking them all over the city while their father is away. When he announces he's going to marry Baroness Schrader, Maria is forced to reckon with her growing feelings for Georg, and she goes back to the abbey. But she and the children, and even Georg, realize they all need each other. She returns to the Von Trapps and marries Georg, becoming mother to the seven children. Finally, Germany and the Nazi party take over Austria and try to recruit Georg back to the Navy. They use the cover of a singing festival to escape the officers trying to take him. And with the help of the nuns at the Abbey, the Von Trapps and Maria escape over the hills to flee the war and their home. Mm. So this had a budget of $8.2 million, which is not huge for this time. Uh, this is kind of middle of the road now. It grossed $286 million. <laughs> um, it grossed $72 million in its first year, so it was number one at the box office in 1965. It is still number three all time adjusted for inflation. Wow. So it goes Gone with the Wind, the original Star Wars, and The Sound of Music. The Sound of Music. Nice. So this is a movie musical based on the Broadway musical, based on the German films, based on the memoir, based on real life. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Along that path, it didn't get lost. It became something really good. Yeah. Um, So the Von Trapps were really a real family uh, living in Austria whose mother died in 1922 of scarlet fever. I would like to interject really quick and say that you and I got married at a mansion in uh, the Philadelphia area in which the Von Trapp family sang at during their American tour. Nice. That was like the big selling point. They have this little balcony that stands over the courtyard and they were like showing me around. They're like, you can stand here. You can get ready. You can stand on this balcony and look out. And did you know this is exactly where the Von Trapp family stood when they sang? (laughs) I was like, well, done. (laughs) One of them was born in Philadelphia. Ah, man, it's perfect. Yeah. So Maria came into their lives in 1926 when she was asked to teach and tutor one of the children. So slightly different from the the musical. Um, She slowly began teaching the other children as well, but still lived and taught at the Abbey. Eventually, Georg asked her to marry him, and she stopped seeing the family because of this. Um, The mother abbess told her it seemed like God's will that she should marry him, though she did not want to at the time. She was not into him at all. And he was actually about 25 years older than her. Mm -hmm. But she felt that it was right for the sake of the children um, because Uh, they did not have a mother and uh, they were very close to her. I mean, that's not a good reason to marry someone. Well, later she would say that it was the best decision she ever made and (laughs) that they had a great marriage and relationship and she really, really loved him. So it worked out in the end. Great. Um, they would also eventually have three children of their own, so 10 altogether. Uh, All right. And one of those three of their own was born in Philadelphia. Gotcha. So I guess it did work out. Yeah. So they actually got married in 1927. Oh, wow. Um, way before the yeah. war. And they were already a very popular singing group by the time the war started. And so they didn't actually have to flee in the night. <laughs> what? <laughs> I've been deceived. <laughs> also, the Nazi party couldn't like force him to be in it. 
Right. That did always seem a little weird to me. I guess I thought it was more peer pressure than force, but like I, it was very uh, bad peer pressure. Yeah. Like, we'll kill you. <laughs> if you don't join us. I mean, that's a pretty good pressure. <laughs> I guess that is force. I don't know. <laughs> um. So they didn't actually have to flee that way. They did like abandon their home essentially to leave, mm. but they left by train to Italy. Well, that's not half as exciting. Yeah. And then they eventually moved to America and they settled in Vermont where they started a music camp and a vacation lodge that still exists today, still run by the youngest Von Trapp. That's cool. Yeah. As their family singing group became popular, Maria ended up writing a memoir chronicling their family and her joining them titled The Story of the Trapp Family Singers, Hmm. which was published in 1949. It became an instant bestseller and would go on to be made into two German films, The Trap Family in 1956 and its sequel, The Trap Family in America in 1958. <laughs> so it's like an American tale and Bible goes west. <laughs> yeah. I mean, or it's like Ernest goes to camp. Or and <laughs> Hub Alone 2, Lost in New York. <laughs> yeah. Pretty funny. Um, I love it. Actually, in 1956, I didn't realize this, Paramount purchased the option for an American version of the those German films. Oh, okay. And it was going to star Audrey Hepburn as Maria. And then... Uh, always competition, too. Uh, the director attached to the film was going to be Vincent Donahue. Gotcha. Um, they ended up not being able to get the film made, and so they lost their option. Um uh-huh. And then at that point, Vincent Donahue felt that it would make a great stage adaptation for his friend, Mary Martin. Uh-huh. So he talked to a few other producer friends, and they all agreed, and they started putting together a creative team for the project. Um, originally, it was going to be a play with a couple of songs that the Von Trapps regularly sang. Gotcha. Um, but eventually, it turned into a full-blown musical once they asked Rodgers and Hammerstein to write some additional songs. <laughs> yeah, you can't ask them to just do a review or something. Well, they actually agreed to do that. But then once they got into it, they <laughs> said that their style was not going to match the traditional Austrian songs that were oh. also in it. Uh-huh. Yeah. So they said that they should probably make it so that all the songs were original. And then they said, could we also wait until after we finish Flower Drum Song? Because we're working on that right now. And the producers were basically like, yeah, we'll wait as long as you need. Okay. So they finished that and then started working on The Sound of Music. Um, They all decided that it needed to be more of a love story than the original version in which she didn't really want to marry him. Um, And also that it needed to be more dramatic. Well, they definitely accomplished that. Yes. I will say my major complaint about the movie is that it, it, it feels disjointed to me between the first act and the second act which is like Mm. kind of why I don't think I liked it as much as a kid we had or my like best friend growing up I would go to her house and we would watch the first tape and then I would just be like that's good (laughs) and not put in the second VHS well and one thing that I didn't really realize until watching it this time is that I always thought that the intermission was right before they did the singing competition oh I thought the intermission was after climb every mountain uh the first song? No. Oh. When, with Mother Abbas. Oh, that song. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, of course, they said it right at the beginning of World War II, which, you know, creates a backdrop for uh-huh. everything yeah. happening. Makes it seem a little bit more dramatic than it is. They add in a Nazi boyfriend. And- yeah. <laughs> um, 
Of course, the original Broadway production was one of the most successful Broadway productions up to that point in history. It opened on November 16th, 1959, ran over 1,400 performances. It was nominated for nine Tony Awards and won five, including Best Musical, which it tied with Fiorello. Of course, we mentioned that before about LaGuardia. Yeah, Yeah. insanity. Of course, Mary Martin won for Best Actress in a Musical, Mm -hmm. and she beat Carol Burnett. Also crazy. I mean, both are amazing women. So only a few months after its opening on Broadway in June of 1960, 20th Century Fox purchased the film rights to the musical for one point two five million dollars, which is a pretty big sum. Yeah, that's huge. Um, Unfortunately, Oscar Hammerstein died in August of 1960, so he never got to see the full success of the show or the film. Oh, wow. That's sad. Um, Because of that, arrangements were not allowed to be changed from stage to screen. Though Richard Rodgers did write two brand new songs for the film, I Have Confidence and Something Good. Oh, I love I Have Confidence. Yeah, so neither of those were in the original stage production. Okay. Are they in the professional stage production now? I think they are now. Okay. But I'm not sure. There were also two other songs that got cut. So there was a different song for Maria and Georg to sing rather than Something Good. Okay. And then there was a song between Max and Baroness Schrader. Ugh. That sounds boring. Which got cut. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is also very strange to me that neither of these were nominated for Best Song. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I Have Confidence definitely should have been nominated. Yeah. That's like one, one of my favorite songs in the whole movie. Yeah. Finally, two years later, in 1962, Ernest Lehman was finally hired to adapt the script for the film Mm. um, on the heels of his successful adaptation of the script for West Side Story. Yeah, it makes sense. Their first choice for director, of course, was Robert Wise, who was also on the heels of West Side Story. But he was busy working on a film called The Sand Pebbles, which would eventually be released after The Sound of Music. Mm. Uh, So he actually declined. Oh, Robert. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They went to several other directors who all declined as well, including Vincent Donahue, who was attached to it already and directed the Broadway show. Um, And Gene Kelly actually declined. Oh, why? I'm not sure. Huh. Not enough Um, dancing. Eventually, they hired William Wyler. um, What? When he was flown to New York to watch the Broadway production... Uh, he said it was horrible. What? <laughs> William. <laughs> but he was like, okay, I guess I'll do it because it'll probably be a successful film. Oh my gosh. Um, so he started traveling with the producers and Ernest Lehman, the screenwriter, to Austria to start uh, location scouting for the film. Um, in the meantime, Lehman was still polishing the script and started adjusting various scenes for some of the locations that they had decided on. Eventually, Weiler's agent requested that the production be delayed so he could work on his film, The Collector. Right, which does come out the same year. Yeah, and was nominated for multiple awards. Mm -hmm. But rather than delay, they decided to just let him go from the production. Mm. Um, At this point, they went back to Wise uh, because Lehman had snuck him a script. Ah. (laughs) And The Sand Pebbles had also been delayed for some reason. Uh, So he decided to agree to do The Sound of Music. All right. Well, good for him. Yeah. Lehman's only thought for the character of Maria was Julie Andrews the whole time. Aww. Um, She was also at the top of Robert Wise's list as he'd seen her on Broadway several times. Yeah, that makes sense. They were able to secure an early copy of Mary Poppins by doing a favor for Walt Disney. And nobody really knows what that was. I was going to say... What favor? <laughs> they, we don't know. Some uh, Somehow they convinced him to let 
them see because Mary Poppins was not out yet. Wow. So they got to see early footage of her basically to see if they should cast her. Hmm. And basically as soon as it started, uh, Wise told Lehman, let's go sign this girl before somebody else sees this film and grabs her. Oh yeah, totally. So nobody knew that she was going to be successful yet. Wow. That's how, you know what? I was wondering how she got to be in back-to-back films like this, Mary Poppins and then The Sound of Music, right one after the other. Yeah. It's because of this. Yeah, that makes sense. And like, I really can't think of another actor who like hits gold with their first two pictures oh so like brilliantly. No, I, I mean, how? How? Yeah. Her deal for this film was uh, included a second film, not a sequel, but just another film with 20th Century Fox um, for 225000 total, um, which would be about $2 million today. Mm-hmm. And she was still considered somewhat of a risk because they didn't, they really liked Mary Poppins, but it hadn't come out yet. And so they weren't sure, sure. exactly what yeah. people would think of it. But they knew that they liked her. Right. Um, which is why her salary seems a little bit lower than it probably could have been. <laughs> um, they really struggled to find an actor to play Georg. Um, they tested Bing Crosby, Yul Brenner, Sean Connery, and Richard Burton. Whoa. Which... Richard Burton, I feel like they probably only tested because he starred with her in Camelot. Yeah. I mean, all of those people, there is a world in which it could be. Yeah, but, but think I'm of Bing Crosby. Not. Oh, yeah. boy, that would have been horrible. Yeah, or even Yul Brenner. I mean, oh, he's horrible. done, you know, other Rogers and Hammerstein movies, but yeah. still. Ugh. Um, Wise kept suggesting Christopher Plummer, um, who he'd seen on Broadway in Straight Plays. He had mm. not done a musical yet up to this point. But uh, Plummer kept declining because he did not like the version of the character in the script. So eventually he worked out a deal that he would get to work with Lehman one-on-one <laughs> to help craft the character in a way that he felt would be better. Wow. All right. And he was like, had a reputation already for being a really like good actor. Okay. So they felt like that was, that was okay. He wasn't yeah. being a diva or something. No. I also was reading that he wanted to play Cyrano de Bergerac in a musical adaption. Yes. And so his he whole thought... career he always did. <laughs> so he thought this might be Because he did be... play him like famously on the stage. Right. And so I was reading that he thought this might be his uh pathway to the movie musical machine. Well and he was really desperate to do a musical. Like when you see him in interviews talking about the film, like he basically says in modern day, like the only reason I agreed to do it was because it was a musical and I wanted to do a musical. Well, good for him because every musical version of Cyrano de Bergerac that has come out has been very bad. <laughs> I've um, seen many. <laughs> so, of course, they had to interview and audition hundreds of children for oh, the my seven child roles oh my featured prominently. Yeah. Um, they auditioned them in both America and England. Um, most of the kids were American that they ended up casting. Mm. Some of the future stars that they passed on included Patty Duke, the Osmonds, Geraldine Chaplin, Mia Farrow, Leslie Ann Warren, and Kurt Russell. Wow. Surprising. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Charmian Carr, who played Liesel, was the only non-actor who got a role. This is just a funny thing she said about it. She said, quote, I was going to college and getting extra spending money by modeling in fashion shows in one of the stores. One of the girls who modeled with me knew that Robert Wise, producer-director of The Sound of Music, had been conducting a four-month search for someone to play the part of 16-year-old Liesel. 
my friend, without my knowing it, sent in my picture and explained in a note that I sang and danced. I received a call from Mr. Wise to come for a tryout. It took me completely by surprise. Oh, my. Oh, wow. Yeah, pretty funny. So yeah. she was actually 21 when they were filming. Of course, she's gotcha. playing 16, but she was actually an adult of the children. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, she ended up writing two books about her experience of playing Liesl. Um, she worked on a TV pilot and then sung in an hour-long TV special written by Sondheim. Mm. Um, but those were the only acting things that she did. Hmm. Interesting. Um, she got a taste of it and then decided she wanted to just, you know, have a regular just, life. Yeah, I mean, good for her. Rehearsals began in February 1964. And filming began in March of that year. Mm. Um, everyone got along really well. I mean, if you watch, you can watch interviews about all the people, and like they all just say what an amazing time it was That's on set. Good. Um, they all had so much fun. Uh, Julie Andrews also had her child with her oh, on right. set mm-hmm. because she had just given birth. Yeah. And so that was also fun for them Aww. because they had a little Julie Andrews baby around. <laughs> One of the funny issues that they had, and one of the only issues really with the kids, is that Nicholas Hammond, who played Friedrich, grew six inches during their six months of filming. Oh, poor kid. He can't um, help that. <laughs> so they constantly had to give Charmian Carr lifts in her shoes or apple boxes to stand on so yeah. they could continually match that she had been taller. That's so funny. That's something they probably could have thought about. The fact that they're growing kids still. Yeah. Um, also, a funny thing is that the two youngest girls both lost their front teeth while filming. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> so there was a couple scenes that they had to be fitted with like fake teeth Aww, so like they could match. That's so adorable. Yeah. Of course, all of the location shooting was done in and around Salzburg, Austria, with almost all of the interiors shot on a soundstage in Hollywood at the Fox Studios, mm. which I didn't really realize. Um, I kind of thought that all, the whole film was shot in, in Austria. Mm. So all of the like interior of the mansion yeah, was I all mean, shot on a soundstage. That makes sense. Yeah, but like <laughs> it just looks so amazing. <laughs> the last two scenes that they shot were the two gazebo scenes, 16 going on 17 and something good. Oh, okay. Yeah, just interesting thing. It actually got pretty bad critical reception at first. Hmm. Um, Bosley Crowther did not like this film. Bosley. He thought it was too sentimental and, you know, fluff and stuff. All right. Uh, But, of course, the bad reviews didn't stop it from being a huge, like, huge, huge success. Um, It uh, essentially saved 20th Century Fox from ruin caused (laughs) by Cleopatra. (laughs) And while it was in theaters, it actually surpassed Gone with the Wind as the highest grossing film of all time until Gone with the Wind was later re-released. Its initial run in theaters lasted four and a half years. (gasps) What? Yeah. That's insane. Because it was just so successful and popular. People just kept wanting to go see it. And it was the only way that you could see movies. Right. Unless they were like purchased for television rights. Wow. So people just did want to go see it. I mean, that's really cool. I mean, and it's probably a lot of people's favorite movie and Mm -hmm. you want to see it maybe more than once a year, you know? Yeah. Um, Even the cast recording of the soundtrack was incredibly popular. It's one of the most popular albums of all time still. Um, It sold more than 20 million copies worldwide. It uh, reached number one on the Billboard 200 for a time and it charted for 238 consecutive weeks. Wow. Wow. What was the most popular song? 
Uh, I don't know. I would guess now his favorite things is probably the most popular. Oh, sure. And I think all of this to say is like, it just came out at the right time. Yeah, sure. Um, I think like socially, as we've been saying before, the past handful of Best Picture winners are like fun. Yeah. So it's Tom Jones, which is just like a wild sex romp. And then there's My Fair Lady, Lady, which is super fun. And now Sound of Music. Mm -hmm. And even some of the other popular films from the era. I mean, Mary Poppins, we talked about. Like, there are these big, super fun. I mean, James Bond films are very popular right now. Yeah. Even the other films that are nominated this year are on the more fun side, like Darling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it also has to do again we talked about this in the episode with tom jones is like the british cultural invasion yeah. that's mm-hmm. happening and now it's three major like britishy type of things yeah uh, julie andrews is hugely popular yeah a british actress three of the best actress nominees are british mm-hmm. this year i mean it just happened in that way yeah i think part of also the success of this is the fact that they changed the story and butted it up against World War II. Totally. Because Vietnam is happening right now and there's so much unrest. And watching it again, it felt more like, not anti-war is not the right term, but like it feels so much more like they're standing up against something with like art and with song and with fun feelings. And like, I'm sure people felt that way when they went and saw it. Yeah, right. They thwart the Nazis by putting on a concert. Yeah. And at the same time, we, I mean, we have him like tearing down the Nazi uh, flag yeah. and I mean, like. It's so funny because like, you know, I've seen that image countless times and it feels so incredibly American and it's not, which I think is so interesting. Yeah. Like it feels like an embodiment of a way that the people who are on quote, the right side of history wanted to feel. Well, and I think, I mean, nationalism as a like cultural phenomenon is like burgeoning in America at the time. Well, and I mean, there's something that's so beautiful about their love for Austria, Mm -hmm. the singing of Edelweiss. Which is not a real Austrian song. It's an original piece. Well, they made it feel like it was an Austrian song. Well, and that's that moment in the show when he's singing about to be taken off to war and he's like singing it in defiance. Yeah. And like, it's a very powerful moment. And like, I'm sure it resonated with people. And I can only imagine that, like, I'm sure there were people who were worried that another world war was about to happen. Sure. I mean, JFK was assassinated yeah. and, like, multiple countries are starting to get involved with yeah. the Vietnam War. And World War One and World War Two were not that far apart. No. So. And we are not that far past World War Two, Right. Either. So, like, I don't know. I can only imagine. Yeah. But those are my thoughts about that. <laughs> And at the end of every episode, we like to thank the Academy for things relating to this film or this episode. What would you like to thank the Academy for today, Kristen? I would like to first thank the Academy for actors giving advice on how to get an Oscar. Ah, yes. <laughs> just Since do what they, they know say. so well. <laughs> you just do what they say. Soon you too can have an Oscar. I guess Leo didn't take any of that advice hmm. to heart for a long time. <laughs> All you got to do is be in a good picture. (laughs) I know that we have thanked the Academy for this already many times recently, too. And I guess what you're going to thank the Academy for, the thing you always thank the Academy for, child actors. (gasps) Yeah. Yeah, Well, and I, especially for this movie, because I just 
remembered so fondly like childhood memories of watching this movie and like just thinking what they were doing was so fun (laughs) and like I mean my first inklings of like child actors were in musicals and like you know yeah I just think it was so fun and like there's so many stories of people who famous people who like this film and thought that this film was what you know they could be doing they could be doing and like yeah and they're all so good so good yeah and so fun and like it's amazing how those performances just can totally change a whole film yeah so yes thanks to the children in the sound of music yeah i would like to thank the academy for academy award winner not this year but previously julie andrews (gasps) yeah just a woman among women as i was watching this film i just was I was overwhelmed with emotion watching her and just like what a breath of fresh air she is. I know everyone knows this. She's so beautiful and she's just so loving and sweet and funny and so great to watch. And she is just an embodiment of like what I would want to be as a woman and as as a mother. And she was one of my first influences in those ways in so many capacities Mm -hmm. because I mean, I my like some of my first movies were Eloise, the Eloise movies that she's the nanny in and the Princess Diaries that she's, you know, Queen Clarice in and this, The Sound of Music. And I didn't like her Mary Poppins because I was scared of her. But generally speaking, <laughs> like she embodies just such a richness and a beauty. And I've talked about her in our past podcast episode about her life and her childhood and how difficult it was and how she just was so proud to be able to play these women that loved their families so much, that were such good caretakers and that cared so deeply and made life so fun and filled it with music and joy and laughter. And like, that's what we all long for as kids. When you're a kid and you're watching this movie, you just long to have a Maria in your life who will take you away and teach you how to laugh and be free and all those things. And as an adult, I still feel that way when I watch it. I still want a governess to come into my life and <laughs> teach me how to be fun and run around. And yeah. So, Make you cute clothes from the drapes. Oh, uh, yeah. I was telling our friend Laura as I was watching this because she watched it with me a little bit. I was like, Target needs to release a Von Trapp line <laughs> and do like all the, all the little kids wear because the, the patterns are so cute. And I would totally wear all of them. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, thank you for Julie Andrews. I'm Marvel. I would like to thank the Academy for Rodgers and Hammerstein. Huzzah. And this is um, Hammerstein's last musical. Yeah. Uh, because he passed shortly after it all came out. Mm. But I think, I mean, I would say that most people agree that this is their best musical. Yeah. A lot of the songs from this are now considered like musical theater standards. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which doesn't happen that often to musical theater songs and it's just great like great music great orchestration really clever lyrics Mm -hmm. i mean it's like some of the best ever of musical theater yeah um yeah so 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 good yeah plus you got julie andrews singing it so (laughs) i know also some of the best of musical theater what more could you want not anything here and with that We leave you. Yes. Thanks for listening. So long. Farewell. Adieu. And join us next week when we bring you a new Academy Archives. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. 
You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.